Hello, I am Joel McLeod. I'm Roland Tanner. And welcome to the 905er. Climate change. It may not have seemed like it for the past year, but it is still the most prevalent threat to humanity's survival on this planet. Currently, the West Coast is finally getting some reprieve from the record-setting heat wave, which saw a town burn to the ground in British Columbia. Scientists and climatologists are saying that this is only the beginning. The federal government is looking to tackle the issue by trying to implement carbon pricing and other measures across the country. Provincial premiers are all over the map in either showing support or opposition to climate change initiatives. And the question is whether or not we can retool our economy to meet the challenge of climate change. Major industries are being forced to deal with becoming more sustainable while also meeting customer demand for efficiency. For a resource-rich country like Canada, it can mean threats to major national industries like mining and oil extraction. For everyday Canadians, especially those in the 905, it all seems too much to comprehend. Will my standard of living decrease? What will this mean for my job or for my children's future? Our guest tonight is a visionary who might be one of to give the 905 economy and the Canadian economy in general the shot in the arm it needs to tackle the changes coming our way. Flavio Volpe is the president of the Auto Parts Manufacturers Association. He is known internationally as being a champion of the Canadian automotive industry and has worked closely with automotive executives and leaders around the world to help foster the industry here in Canada. Most recently, he joined the Canadian delegation to negotiate NAFTA into what is now known as the USMCA deal. Today, he joins us to talk about Project Aero, a Made in Canada project to demonstrate our industrial and technical knowledge and capabilities for this new era of electric vehicles. With General Motors in Oshawa, Chrysler in Brampton, and Ford in Oakville, the automotive industry is a huge player here in the 905. We need to be prepared to take advantage of whatever changes in the industry are coming our way. Project Aero might be the catalyst for change we need here in Canada. Now, before we begin, we, of course, would like to encourage you to join our Patreon for only $7 per month. By becoming a 905er yourself, you'll be helping to tell the stories like these and many more. Please click on the link in the show notes to learn more. And now, on with the show. I'd like to thank uh, Flavio Volpe for of the Auto Parts Manufacturing Association in Canada for coming on today to discuss uh, a project that I think is, is infinitely fascinating and exciting for the Canadian economy project arrow and rather than me butcher it by trying to describe it uh very poorly i'm going to have you flavio describe it for our, our listeners who may not know what it is i'm talking about uh sure happy to give it a shot i get paid to do this so i probably should get it right <laughs> we for, for five or six years the association here has uh, built demonstration vehicles uh let me loosely describe them as ontario built lexuses um, or Chrysler Dodge vehicles, where we've asked our members, uh, hardware, software, tooling companies, look, if you want to demonstrate something on a rolling platform, we're going to put it on these vehicles and we'll take them to CES or LA Auto Show or uh, Tokyo Motor Show or to uh, car maker tech days at General Motors, Honda, Tesla, Mercedes, etc. You know, I got invited to the throne speech in, in uh, the end of 2019, uh, as a guest of the prime minister, and he said, we need to get the Canadian economy to um, zero emissions and net zero by 2050. And, and, you know, I challenge every industry to get there quicker. Came back to the office and said, you know, we keep, we make everything in Canada from stem to stern in a vehicle. And uh, we're highlighting it on other people's vehicles, great vehicles that we make here with all our stuff on it. But 
is there a way for us to do one better? Can we design and build our own vehicle? Can, can, can we source everything in Canada? Um, can we make it zero emissions? Uh, can we make it high technology and lightweight? And so I put the challenge to my team and, you know, we didn't, we didn't hesitate to say, yeah, let's do it. And Project Arrow came out of that. Uh, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to, we wanted to be able to capture the imagination, not just of the industry, but, you know, I think industry is, uh, looks in the mirror enough. We all know each other well enough, but how do we get the interest of uh, Canadians in this project? Uh, you know, we have the, we have the second biggest, depending on year, the second biggest automotive cluster in North America behind Michigan and Ontario. We have the second biggest IT cluster behind Silicon Valley. We've got um, the biggest natural resources, you know, uh, lithium, uh, graphite, nickel, cobalt that we need in Ontario and Quebec. And what a lot of people don't know is that um, Toronto is the global uh, the global center of uh, artificial intelligence and Montreal's the the global center of machine learning. So we said, God, let's put this thing together. Let's name it after the Avro Arrow and see if we can't capture some of the some of the great innovation, ingenuity, uh, some of that just like shamelessly going for it that went with that project. So what we're talking about is like a made in Canada electric car for like conceivably for the Canadian climate. I mean, that, that, that's, that's one of the, the, the things that kind of intrigued me about when I heard about this was because, I mean, we, we hear about electric cars. I, I think every major car manufacturer has uh, either this year or next year, they're introducing a major electric car into their, their brand portfolio, but none are made in, in Canada uh, yet. But what I liked about it was that the one thing that's notorious about electric cars is that in colder climates, their batteries start to, to, they don't hold the charge as well. And there's something about kind of, if we can build a car that's kind of good for the colder climates of Canada, I, you know, that could be shipped across the, uh, across the, the world. Is it part of the, this project just kind of proven to the world that Canada isn't falling behind in kind of what seems to be the next generation of cars coming in, into the market? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of this is look, let's tell every, so all the automakers in the world, like you've mentioned there, tripping over themselves to say, I'm going electric first. No, I'll do it. Are you doing it in 10 years? I'll do it in five years. Are you right. doing it in five years? I'll do two of them next year. Every government in the world is tripping over themselves. You know, yesterday we heard the EU say no uh, no gas-powered sales uh, by 2035. You know, Canada two weeks ago said the same thing. California, which, which wags the dog in the U.S., is saying the same thing, maybe even earlier, 2030. So we're all getting there. And so we say, uh, you know, I, I, I had just been through uh, two years of NAFTA renegotiations. And then before that, two years of uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. And even though we're one of the global powers in automotive, maybe the 10th biggest, uh, we don't have a Canadian automaker. And I think that a lot of other jurisdictions and a lot of companies don't think we're in that business. And so this project is to show everybody we do the whole thing here, every single part of it. And... We have a unique perspective in Canada. Um, we have a climate range that is uh, threatens the efficient use of a of an electric powertrain. Well, let me show you what we can do. The technology that's here that'll work, you know, minus thirty in Edmonton and mm -hmm. plus thirty in Toronto in um, July, and that's both battery performance and powertrain performance, but also the orientation of the technology in the car. You know, what are kind of unique Canadian perspectives? I want to scoop myself on the way that we're <laughs> going to we're gonna orient some of the technology. But, you know, uh, one of the things we pride ourselves in here is our approach to healthcare. 
you know, when you drive a vehicle, you've got to be licensed. Part of that licensing is age. Uh, it's also eyesight, uh, cardiac condition. Um, what can you do if you're injured? We've got a whole bunch of technology, driver-facing technology that you'll see in this in this vehicle that also works with um, uh, vehicle dynamics, the driving technology that says, um, how can we orient the vehicle as a caregiver? Can we monitor a driver? Yeah, we've got to get through all kinds of privacy issues. So before your listeners say, uh, I don't know about that. Well, from a technology perspective, I'll show you what's possible. Monitor the driver, monitor his or her condition, um, her alertness, uh, his uh, cardiac care. Are you recovering from an, from some type of injury? Do you have use of all your extremities? Can we orient the vehicle to um, to to help kind of take care of you? Those are some of the uniquely Canadian technologies that are in there. You know, we talk about uh, you know crazy climates. You know, we're working with a with a company that is doing a different approach to HVAC. Usually, heating and air conditioning is some central system that blows the air. Um, we're working with someone that I think we're going to we're going to do interesting things in in ambient air uh, heating that uh, is um, a more efficient system and uh, really uniquely Canadian at the, this point. And so you'll see a bunch of those. You know, we launched this project. We said we had ninety three companies that had been with us for that journey on the six or seven vehicles over the six or seven years we've been doing it. I'd hoped that we'd get to two hundred when we. When we RFP this project, we're at uh, last count was 385. And so there's lots and lots of opportunities to highlight Canadian technology. And at the core of it, guys, it's, um, you know, I'm not building a car company. I'm building a car to demonstrate technology that's commercially ready, available in Canada, uh, the majority of which is made by companies that are already suppliers in the tier two, tier one space. Mm-hmm. And then we'll take this car to everywhere, you know, Mercedes, Tesla, Ford, and say, look, here's what's on it. And we'll connect you with everybody that's uh, that's uh, contributed to it. And I guess the uh, the importance of of doing this is to say, I mean, we've got huge companies. You know, the one that probably most people are familiar with is is Magna, obviously, is, is one of the global players that is a Canadian company. And I, I guess you know, it's it's. Um, it's it's kind of change or die, isn't it? Because if it's, yeah. if if what they do, uh, what has made them, uh, you know, have many billion dollar a year industry, is things that are connected with gas and oil and combustion en- engines, then we have to, or they have to shift to to a, to the new uh, to the new uh, paradigm, I guess. So it's really. Uh, you know, this isn't just a sort of a, a for fun exercise, I guess. It's, it's it's like this is showing that we're ready for the next generation. Is that uh, the right way of kind of looking at it? Yeah. You know what? History is going to forget that we got out there a year before everybody else did. Uh, <laughs> but, but now everybody's in the space. So it's one of these things, Roland, uh, that if we didn't launch this um, a year and a half ago now, we'd be behind the curve. And... You know, companies like Magna have built, you know, Magna's, I don't know how many of your listeners know Magna because they would never be out there presenting their name. They're not the customer facing, uh, they're not the customer facing brand, but it's a $40 billion a year company with 140,000 employees, 300 factories around the world. It flies a Canadian flag and Magna components are in dozens of vehicles around the world from, you know, Ferrari to Fiat, uh, you know, General Motors to Toyota. And, um, you know, there's, 
they are an incredible company. And in many ways, they're, our, they're the project arrow anyway. When Magna's out there uh, uh, talking to Mitsubishi, uh, everybody knows what Canada can do. This, this vehicle is, what about all those other companies? You know, those little smaller companies are doing 50, 100 million a year, 200 million a year. Well, Let me get them part, there. Yeah. Well, part of, part of the reason why I, I, or I would talk with Wallace, I, I want to get this guy on here to talk about it, was because for listeners in the 905 region, you have GM in Oshawa, or at least they were, Ford, of course, in Oakville. Everybody knows about that. And you have Chrysler in uh, Brampton. But then you also have all the smaller companies that feed into them. I mean, we we always we heard the, the phrase too big to fail during the 2008 recession in relation to the auto industry here in Canada. Like this is in Ontario, this is our oil industry. If you want, you know, a, a bad a bad analogy, I, I'm, I kind of want to look at it. The, the fact that you said there's 308 vendors who were interested in becoming part of this. Because that was one of my questions: Are you? What's the reception to this project? In the industry, like, are, are people skeptical, or are they are they eager? And it sounds like there's a lot of appetite for this change in the industry itself here in Canada. We've had a crazy response. So the number is three eighty five, and it's it's I represent a hundred less companies than that. So just to, so you your listeners understand that a lot of people ask me, is this an APMA member? So we represent ninety five percent of the independent parts production in Canada. Hundred thousand people work for uh, the companies that we represent. And um, I had said, I hope that 200 of those, almost 300, join this project. Well, we're at 385, which means there's like 100 companies I've never heard of that have great technology that just haven't applied that in the automotive space that said, oh, let me get on your platform. Um, you know, we talk about this around the world. It's great. I'm doing a local broadcast here to, to people who are probably, you know, who work for or have friends that work for the companies that are on this. You know, we got interest from around the world. I did an interview with a magazine in Paris last week who wanted us to walk through what we're doing. And, you know, when I say to them, look, company X, Y, and Z actually sell to Renault and Peugeot and Sichuan right now. You know, she was, she didn't really understand that that is possible. You know, we're all in this kind of just-in-time uh, concentric circles of supply. Um, but our tech companies, if you're selling software, or if you're selling tools, they go around the world. You know, set. You know, you might send three hundred thousand door panels to a plant in Brampton from your shop in Etobicoke. But if you're a, if you're doing telematics in Ottawa, you can supply fifty OEMs around the world. And and um, this project is has become a bit of a of a Canadian automotive community. You know, we're we're almost like the stewards of it. It's it's blown up. In terms of coverage and interest and the connections that are making, it's blown up uh, faster and wider than anything we anticipated. And a lot of those commercial relationships are are being formed right now, you know, before this vehicle is even finished. Now, how many of those 385 can I put on the car? Probably a quarter of them. But we're also building a digital, uh, a virtual version, mm -hmm. a virtual twin, and then a digital twin. A digital twin versus uh, a, a virtual twin is that the digital twin is – um, really the manufacturing process, the, the manufacturing process is built into the engineering. And the virtual twin says, all right, I'm going to give you the VR goggles or I'm going to do this as a hologram. And here's a hundred configurations of this car. So here it is with fuel cells from BC. Here it is with lithium ion prismatic cells from 
from uh, Mississauga, and, and here it is with the graphene-enhanced lithium cells from uh, Quebec. And uh, it is, you know, you talked a little bit about, look, these companies have been built on internal combustion. You know, I've been saying to people, I was at uh, I was at Formula E weekend uh, this past weekend. It's a, it's a open wheel racing. All the major manufacturers was in New York City where they were meeting with uh, the championship series uh, leadership about, you know, what can we do together? Can we find a pathway for for um, some of the aero suppliers? And we talked a little bit about why that series is so important. It's got this advantage that it jumped out. There. It's got the exclusive under the FIA for electric drive, and it's out there eight years before anybody else. And I said, the one thing that, that strikes me about the series is that you have to now start competing on uh, connected technology or partially autonomous technology because, you know, three old men here on the screen talking <laughs> about electric cars, <laughs> you know, we're making a distinction that in 10 years there won't be or 15 years there won't be. My, my 15 and 16-year-old son and my 18-year-old daughter, when they go buy cars in their 30s, there's no electric cars. It's a car. They're all electric. And so Ford's internal combustion engine F-150 versus its electric F-150 to the untrained eye looks the same. And 95% of the parts are the same. But those, where the value in the car is, it's going to shift. Well, I, I kind of want to jump on that point because I, I think, that, you know, we're talking about the future of the Canadian economy. The, the, auto, the auto industry in Canada is a huge it's, it's the backbone of the economy here in Ontario, definitely the 905, I think. And so what happens here impacts coast to coast to coast. That being said, what you've just described, I find fascinating because what we're talking about is a, a shift in really in the auto industry. We're going from like a simple internal combustion, you know, build a carburetor, build a drivetrain, build muffler and, and all that old school stuff that we're so used to thinking of in terms of technology that was really transferable, not just in the auto industry, but kind of like almost any industry in the world. I mean, if you talk about, you know, automation, you were talking about software uh, updates, electrical efficiency, battery production, etc. A lot of this stuff isn't just centered onto the auto industry. This can easily be taken and scaled up to multiple other industries as well, not just the auto industry. Yeah. Let me, let me run a scenario for you. Uh, the vehicle components that you just just described was the looked like the language of the NAFTA in the automotive rules of origin. Here are the twenty nine parts categories that you had to track and that you had to get to sixty two and a half percent to be able to sell that car tariff free in North America, and they were written in nineteen ninety four. Right, and we now have sixty one parts categories, and the number's got to go to seventy five. And in this new NAFTA, there's a recognition that there are core, there are pr- core parts and principal parts and, and, and secondary parts, all of which um, all three governments wanted to have more localized. But we put a real emphasis in there on batteries and on the kinds of technologies that uh, are more tech commodities than they are analog transportation commodities. So we have a scenario where... If you've got an internal combustion engine vehicle, it could be extremely high-tech. You know, you take Lexus product made here in Ontario, RX and NX, very high-tech applications. But you've got a 12-volt battery. You start the car, or I guess you press the button. now and not turn the key. In. <laughs> you've got a 40-volt platform, and, and people are expecting some type of driver assistance and a whole bunch of stuff. Well, when that car has a 100-kilowatt battery in it, it's going to run a 400-volt system. And then future iterations are going to run 800 volts. 
Well, when you run those systems, number one, Joel, neither one of us is going to stick our fingers under the hood to change wires and plugs because we'll kill ourselves. But we're talking about um, a platform that allows for incredible amount of computing power, sensors, cameras. Um, we're going to have a vehicle that like, you know, with the cell phones that we all carry, we have incredible amount of computing power already. Well, imagine 10 times that amount in your vehicle. And your vehicle has got sensors on every corners, uh, weather telematics, uh, uh, vehicle infrastructure, vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to pedestrian. General Motors made a really public uh, uh, bid of saying not only will we be zero emissions, we're going to be um, uh, zero collisions. Uh, Toyota, of course, has been a world leader in these uh, advanced driver assistance systems. If you have a car that is collecting terabytes of data, and you can find a way through uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning to crunch that data in real time to action the vehicle dynamics or create the kind of data that Verizon wants, or Rogers wants, or Loblaws wants. You also start to see different models of ownership and relationships between the vehicle and the, and the vendor. Right now, you buy a car from Ford, your relationship is over if you buy it except for service. But how about 10 years from now, when you go buy a Ford, and Ford says, take this edge built in Oakville, drive 24,000 kilometers a year. This is, the, this is the, the contract we have with each other. And sign over the data, because we made a deal with Verizon. And also sign over the carbon credits that your vehicle, which today puts out an average of 4.6 metric tons of carbon a year, at 4.6 metric tons a year times 12 years on average of vehicle life, it's worth a hell of a lot of money to somebody in carbon credits 10 years from now. I'm going to give you the car. I'll give you the car at half price. As long as you drive that amount of uh, mileage at these different times, you're going to be collecting the data that I'm going to be able to monetize. And you're also going to be offsetting carbon that the automaker may monetize, it may belong to you, Joel, it may belong to you, Roland. We're going to see lots and lots and lots of other mo other models of ownership. And, you know, my 16-year-old son, you know, I mean, when I was 16, I probably camped out at the at the MTO the night before to get my right. 365. This kid is yeah. three or four months into it, and he's just a shrug. And I go, you got thousands of horsepower in the driveway. And <laughs> it's a completely different model now, isn't it? I mean, I mean yeah, young right? young. Kids do not see that rite of passage of getting your license, getting your first car. They don't care. Uh, yeah. You know, obviously, <laughs> cars are not going away anytime soon, quite clearly. But we are in the 905. The things that the governments are, are kind of pushing for is like, you know, more densely populated cities where there's more reliance on, on public transit and things like this. Is How do you see the move to electric fitting in with that kind of broader picture of of not just moving from gas to electric, but moving from gas to different patterns of driving, I guess. Boy, that's where the milk gets in the coconut, right, Roland? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, can, you can mandate everybody to have an electric vehicle, but you've got to make sure that if they all plug in at the same time, we don't blow the transformer down the street. And so you've got to have infrastructure planning part and parcel of this. So you map wherever we're at now, 3% zero emission vehicles, you want to go to 100 by 2035. Somebody asked me, everybody asked me, you know, can the government do it? I go, everybody just chill out a little bit. Is the government um, declaring its intention? 
And we've got to have a stepped plan that includes a whole bunch of other actors uh, than the than the parts of car makers. Um, who's going to be responsible for building up that infrastructure? And how do you decide uh, what that density is? Uh, we're going to look at building codes. Uh, we're going to need to look at what uh, battery recycling industry looks like. For At the beginning, it might be a responsibility. And then in 10 years, it might be an opportunity. You know, the types of battery technologies that we have now, maybe they have 80% of their capacity at the end of 12 years. Um, and they have X final use. But the batteries that we're looking at being made 12 years from now might have 10 times the power and only 10% of the degradation. And so they might be, that first generation might be the grid buffer. Um, you know, where are people going to charge? going to charge at your house? Great. You can do that now, really. You charge a slow trickle overnight. But, um, you know, you're going to have an oil and gas industry that has a whole bunch of stranded assets and gas stations. Are they really your partners in uh, that transition? Can we set up charging infrastructure on those facilities? A lot of those are great urban real estate, but you know, from my old land use planning days, they're all contaminated sites. Gas Can you help them? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you help them transition? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the charger stuff rolling. I mean, look, in 15 years, I can. We can. You can. In <clears> five years, you can charge wirelessly. I mean, you can do it today. But in a, from a commercial sense, five years from now, mm-hmm. could you, does that, do you have charging in your regular infrastructure? You know, it's all those things that have to be planned over the next um, 15 years. And frankly, with the, the rate of growth in the 905 uh, and then the, 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 the infill on the old growth in the 905 presents a kind of a unique opportunity where density uh, meets opportunity and you're in the backyard of the industry. And with all the great construction companies that we have here and infrastructure companies we have here, you know, we could probably use a body that says, um, how are we going to get there as a jurisdiction? Can we get all the players around the table to help kind of draft that investment plan? It sounds almost now, like that, we have we have a golden opportunity at our at our feet to kind of re- reshape. I'm going to say like all of Canada, like we're talking like the, the economy to make it more sustainable. You know, we're, we're embrace the future and kind of still be ahead of the curve on a global uh, level. But you know, redevelop, redesigning our cities and our our way, the place that we live to become to, to kind of embrace that future. You know, just greener, more sustainable, better infrastructure. Because you know, I, I, what you're saying is to, to me that the real the real test of an electric car is can I get from my house here in Burlington to my family out in PEI. You know, I, what I want to do is I want to take like a, you know, the family minivan, ideally the electric minivan and just be able to drive for two days from here through Quebec, New Brunswick, stop in PEI and be able to charge as needed along the way without having to worry about, oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm 10 kilometers away from or hundred kilometers away from the closest charging station, you know, kind of, you know, the infrastructure is built up right now based on the old, old format of fuel consumption. So I'm not so much a question to you, Flavio. It's to any politician, I guess, who happens to be listening. You know, we need we need to start getting around the table now to start planning this out, uh, not just in the 905, but honestly, kind of the entire nation. Well, uh, I was going to, I was going to sort of feeding off off that exact point. You know, uh, back in 2018, we had change of government, and we had the the uh, carbon. Uh, I've forgotten the, the the phrase now, but the 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 cap and trade basically um, structure that was 
that was cancelled. Also, as a range of subsidies for electric, uh, electric or, or hybrid vehicles, I think, that were cancelled. Now, as someone who's primarily interested in the health of your industry, was that helpful uh, to you? Uh, would, would it be better if they left well alone? I tell you, you may need problem. to be careful about how you answer that. I don't know. No, no, it's not careful with me. No problem. I'll tell you this, <laughs> and I'll surprise you with the answer. I said to them, you should get rid of those incentives uh, because what you're doing is a pinprick. So but let's say $100 million a year going all out to foreign manufacturers who are, who are making cars in other jurisdictions. And then turn that and promise those same manufacturers, if they make those vehicles here, if you commit to those mandates and commit to the volumes, that you'll take that money and then invest it in the plants here. And I'm not saying they took my advice, but I mean, they did throw $300 million at Ford. Ford is committed to making battery electric only vehicles in Oakville. General Motors is doing a battery electric only um, commercial delivery vehicles in Ingersoll. Uh, uh, Chrysler and Dodge via Stellantis have committed to doing the same in Windsor and in Brampton. I think that's a better way of using public funds is to say, um, we want you to change the, the, the products that you make. Um, and, you know, a lot of the companies here like Honda and Toyota, they build where they sell. There's a lot of volume that gets built from those two companies. Let's say they make a million vehicles a year here in Ontario and about 500,000 of them are sold here. You make it easier for people to turn around and buy an electric um, RAV4 or an electric uh, Honda Civic uh, or minivan. And I thought that that was a better use of the funds. I was part of the government 12 years ago that put in those electric incentives. And we thought that that would have been, that was the leading edge in, let's say, 2008, 2009. The evidence was that it was going to $14,000 subsidies for somebody buying a Tesla Model S. And, you know, Tesla is a, a great evangelizing uh, um, uh, company in our business. But they make them in um, California. And so I don't know that it was moving anything further ahead here. What it did was helped those of us who can afford $140,000 Model S to get 10% off. You know, I think we have to, if we want to be serious about using the instruments revenue, uh, you know, on, on the tax side or on the cash side of uh, the, 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 of, uh, the public purse, is we have to take a look at what's going to lead directly to adoption of product made here. Now, it doesn't always work that way. You know, like in some, some industries, we're not in that space. And everybody loves to talk about Norway. Norway's got the top adoption. It's incredible. Well, Norway put 100% tax on internal combustion engine vehicles. It means that if you want a RAV4 in Norway, it's $100,000. Are you going to buy that? No. You'll buy the $52,000 electric option. Um, but they're not, punishing their, they're not punishing their local industry. Here we have to make sure... Uh, and this goes for every industry. And, and I think I'd love to talk about, you know, how do we, how does this future include Alberta? Um, you, you have to be sensitive to the fact that while we want to be, uh, do the right thing morally and we want to be leaders in that climate space, if we get there in second place, but bring a whole industry with us, then we win. If we get there in first place and lose the industry that, that, um, employs 700,000 Canadians through, various, you know, from distribution to manufacturing, then then you got a whole other problem, don't you? Well, on, on that note, then, what do you think the Canadian government should be doing to help uh, the oil industry adapt to this new paradigm? You know, it's really interesting. Uh, look, you're looking at 
in many in many cases is global giants who are invested in the extraction of um, of of raw materials in Alberta and then refining them and then uh, uh, sending them whether by pipe or, or by vehicle uh, to the final user um, in products that governments around the world are going to mandate out of out of circulation well so you, you kind of have to look at what the asset basis of those companies are and where the Canadian employment is uh, and see if you can transition them for example on the final end of the distribution of it gas stations. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there a way to turn around and partner with the distributing branch of those companies to say, all right, we're going to spend a whole bunch of money in infrastructure. You already own the real estate. You save us the, the real estate cost and we'll incentivize you to convert them to charging stations. Um, you know, on the, on the extraction side, look, if there's no demand for the product or less demand for the product, you're going to extract less. Well, you've got an incredible amount of skilled labor concentrated in uh, northern Alberta that could they be part of the future of the manufacture of vehicles? Well, there's a company out there that uh, we're dealing with that's doing uh, extracting lithium from the brine from oil and gas. Well, I mean, okay, it's one company. But if there's promise there, if there's a promise of carbon capture technology there, then change the risk profile in which the, the government invests in companies. Go for a higher risk for a better return, hopefully a better return in those areas. Um, help the Alberta government, for example, to create. So the one thing that we don't have in Canada, the one thing, the reason that Silicon Valley and for that matter, New York State and, and Massachusetts uh, and Illinois do better than Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, BC is our tax regime does not, um, we're very conservative. We haven't created an opportunity for risk capital to uh, to survive, but to thrive, and 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 then and then uh, help to uh, commercialize some of the technology here. Well, couldn't we use some of the advantage right now that we have in Alberta to turn around and use the maybe the federal tax base, uh, the federal tax regime to do uh, to to incentivize risk investments, riskier investments, earlier stage investments in resource based uh, provinces. You know, you gotta. We know where it's going, mm-hmm. and that's 15, 20 years. It seems like a long time, but it's a short time. But it also gives you some time to think. Um, I'm not sure we're there. I'm not sure that the current Alberta government is there. Well, that was, yeah, that was the question I was going to ask, is that there seems – I saw someone recently, or a few months ago, sort of describing today's Alberta to, to Hamilton, which brings it back to the 905 conveniently, yeah. <laughs> uh, a few decades ago, and that – you know, these are places that have one industry that everything revol- it depends on, and and that industry is you know either going away or going to change fundamentally. And you know, a state of kind of denialism of of no, no, we just need to keep on taking the oil out of the ground seems tragic. You know, and it, it, people just have to recognize it's like you can, you can you can build all the pipelines in the world, but if California doesn't want gas anymore, then California doesn't want gas anymore. Uh, and they've already made that commitment. Um, so, you know, is that something that the Canadian government is able to address when, when to an extent, the province doesn't seem to want the Canadian government to come uh, uh, to help them, so to speak? It's, it's the million-dollar question. And I do know that the Canadian economy doesn't work without a healthy um, Alberta. You know, in many ways, you know, Alberta and Ontario are the two sides of that balance. You know, pick whoever you want as the fulcrum, but 
if we lose that industrial capacity and that, that wealth generation in Alberta because we bluntly transition our, um, our, our markets through regulation and legislation out of it, then we've got a really big problem. And yes, morally, we're all responsible for um, for the climate on this planet. And I think we're I think we're kind of waking up to this as a crisis. I say kind of. The kids get it. Um, maybe our generation gets it. Uh, but in, but to this point, I don't know how old the two of you are, but you kind of look like me. <laughs> but you know, we're not we're not running it all yet, and. It is gonna. It's very difficult to to let go of something that is an engine of prosperity for you when the when the when the result is nothing. You know, it's um, it is a national it is a national priority climate change, but it also is an upcoming national crisis if we lose oil and gas and all the benefits that come from that industry for the national. Uh, psyche, the national economy, uh, the national ability to like the reason we're able to respond to the changes in technology and that we're able to respond uh, in automotive and ITM is partially funded by the fact that we are extracting fossil fuels. And by the way, we've also like, you know, I keep saying that the biggest opportunity here is we've got all the lithium we that anybody needs in the ground here. We've got to extract it and process it and not send it to Korea or, or Japan to do it. But that extraction is not without environmental damage. And in our rush to do it, and we need to do, we need to get those processing uh, partners in place in the next two to five years. But we may shift a whole bunch of that emissions from extraction in Alberta to extraction in northern Quebec. And so we've also got to be thoughtful. I, th- I think it's so many opportunities, and it's great to hear someone who's working hand in hand with with the with the auto industry, which it's too of. It's very easy to sometimes think of you know um, someone with my kind of political background as you know, kind of the enemy, you know. And yeah, it's yeah. Like, no, you can't think like that. I mean, a because we're employing millions of people, uh, but also it, this idea of of, of you know, for for every challenge, there's an opportunity, isn't there? The, so you know, uh, what is easier? Well, this is just a problem. Oil's over. Shut it all down. Is is not a, a realistic approach to what ha- needs to happen over the next decade or so. Yeah. Um, I see we're coming up close to to our time, but I wanted to quickly change direction because I was I was doing some background reading on you this morning, and oh, yeah. I, I saw a really interesting other thing that you do called uh, One Spark. Um, yeah. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I, I know I'm sort of springing this on you. You weren't this wasn't you were expecting to talk about, but I, I thought it was really interesting, and I'd like love to hear about it. Well, at the core of it, uh, I met someone who is a visionary in her space, Corey Palco, and we were both studying at uh, for our MBAs about 150 years ago, <laughs> and and we've worked together on a series of projects, and and she's always reminded me through the years that you know you could great, go be good at something, but make sure that something is also being a good citizen. And we talk about, you know, who has and who hasn't in this country. And one of her passions is um, modernizing the support systems for uh, women who are in vulnerable situations or who are escaping uh, domestic violence. And, and you know, she, she read to me the pretty stark statistics of how many slide back 
when the shelter system, when they time out of the shelter system, especially if you have um, dependents, you, you, you might make some decisions to say, look, I can go back to a bad situation because I can handle it, but I, I'm doing it for them. So one spark is, is um, a vehicle that she created uh, to help uh, some women. Um, and I say some only because we have limited resources. Wouldn't I love the kinds of resources that we're talking about in this space? Say, look, while you're in the shelter system, let me, let me, let me teach you the, the, the financial fluency, operational fluency, legal, marketing, um, to help you get on your feet with confidence so that before you have to make this terrible decision to go back to um, uh, danger, you can find uh, a career and a pathway. And maybe that's entrepreneurial. You know, we equip them, we do some training, we equip them with some uh, with some basic uh, hardware. Uh, it's a mentorship program. And uh, we try to get partnership of companies to sponsor uh, people. And it, you know, it might cost two to $5,000 to change people's lives. And uh, they're doing God's work, uh, to be honest. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, there's all these great causes. Everybody's got a cause and we were not, we have no shortage of it. Uh, but uh, what's great about one spark is that you meet these people. It's very acute and you change their lives and everybody can understand. There is nothing ethereal about somebody is physically threatening you. And now you don't have to go back to them. It, it, it's, it's great for the women, but also great for the families that, uh, that they're helping to protect. And another, I mean, I remember hearing statistic years ago, uh, years ago about the who the uh, wh- where entrepreneurs come from in in Ontario, uh, and you know, one of the biggest groups of entrepreneurial people are sort of women who who've had children. The children have grown up, uh, so it, it's a it's a huge sort of untapped. Re- this is a funny way to talk about people who are in a horrible situation, but. I thought it was fascinating. It has something that hadn't occurred to me to sort of basically, you know, educate people in entrepreneurism as as a way of giving them economic independence. Which you know, yeah, as we know, it's that economic, unfortunately, uh, a key element in in uh, people, like you say, going back to domestic violence is purely economic. I don't have anywhere to live. That's the only place I can go. Do you know what? Survivors become very resourceful. And then if you can teach them the tools of how to turn that resource into profit or into an escalating um, pathway of knowledge that they can turn around and um, generate a stable income for themselves or picture themselves with confidence as breadwinners and not just protectors of their children, but also providers of their children. Uh, and, and sometimes they, you know, what you're doing is not only are they leaving domestic violence, you're leaving a, 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 an environment under which you're, uh, it's a psychological cloud. It's an emotional cloud. And so even if you had spare time, uh, you're not sitting there saying, wow, what can I learn right now? It's like, oh, let me breathe out. And so in that space where they have time, uh, get them some clarity of mind and an ability, some mentorship to climb back out. Uh, you know, there is there is no uh, bigger striver than someone who's had nothing, uh, someone who has been told that they're worthless and someone who has been shown that they're worthless. And now I'll give you a chance and I'll give you the tools and I'm going to support you. Um, you know, some really wonderful things come out of that program. That, that's I, I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, it is a, I, it I, is a dear I, thing. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I, I've never heard of it, and it, it sounds fantastic. And um, one one dash spark ca. That's right. Listening, who wants to check it out? Um, That's right. Uh, Joel, I'll hand it over to you. You've, uh, uh, well, I'm not going to try and top that, so <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that for the for this episode. Thank you very much, Flavio, for coming on and talking about uh, uh, both one spark and uh, Project Arrow. It's it's exciting, uh, exciting work, and I'm really excited to see what what happens in the near future once. Once we uh, once COVID is over and we're all the economy's back moving forward, you guys should do an episode with us when we can get together and we'll do uh, the virtual walkthrough. We'll put the goggles on, and you put your headphones on, and we'll walk you through what this thing is like. Uh, you'll you'll get as excited as uh, as we do when you see it. Okay, it's done because you just said that on air, so it's official now. Yeah, I'm in. Thanks very much. Sure. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. Did Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.